If you will, turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Today we'll be looking at verses 17 to 34 in just a few minutes. But I want to make a statement. I firmly believe that one of the best things in life is a shared meal. You ever thought about that before? You don't have to have anything super special, but you do need a few things. First of all, you need time to put together something, right? You need food, and you don't even need the best food. I would argue that sometimes the best shared meals I've had weren't steak or lobster or the best Chinese food, which would be my preference. It's actually just the thought that goes into it. Little meals served and put together with great love means so much. And the, the last thing you really need for a shared meal is other people to join you, right? Typically at your shared meals, you have your family sitting down at your family table, or you meet a friend at their home or bring them to your home or you go to a restaurant. And what's the point of all that? Well, I would say that you typically don't sit down to have a meal with your enemy. You don't. Whoever you sit down to have a meal with, if the person is not your friend yet, he or she is on the way to becoming your friend. And likewise, in your families, you don't sit down to eat because you hate each other, but because by common bonds and love for one another, you, you show that by what you share. Now, I think with those elements, you can have a wonderful shared meal, and it really is one of the best things in life. But I would also say that there's an extra thing that we tend to bring to those shared meals, but we may not think to bring. It just shows up. And that's sin. I mean, seriously, who would ever think of adding a dash of anger into a picnic? Who would ever intentionally bring jealousy to an ABF potluck? Who would ever decide to show partiality and discrimination when they're gathering together with fellow believers in Christ for a meal. The reality is, friends, sin spoils the best things in life. And sin even spoils the best things that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us in this life. And certainly that shows up in 1 Corinthians 11. I'd like you to look there with me now. 1 Corinthians 11 as I read verses 17 to 34. And, and I don't know what page number it is in the church Bibles provided for you, but we're a church family, and if someone needs help finding it, find it for them and, and share in that way. I am sorry, I was dreadfully unprepared in that way. But I can tell you it's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. And if you are able, please join me for the reading of God's word by standing. And afterwards, I'll pray, and then we can sit down. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me now. Father, we thank you for this text of scripture, and we come today humble and dependent on your spirit to teach us. Help us to recognize ourselves in this text, in areas where you are calling us to repent and to receive your grace for forgiveness and cleansing. And help us to remember the Lord Jesus Christ well at the Lord's Supper today. Amen. And for his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So as you can see, we have the table up here today. And from the text I just read and from the appearance of this table... I hope you're connecting well together that we are remembering the Lord's Supper today. It it sometimes is called communion because of what it involves. It involves a communing of ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and with one another. And this table symbolizes why we gather as a church and why we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't, how you can know him today. These are visual representations of the gospel, this bread which symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ which was crucified on a cross for sinners. That's your hope today if you don't know him, that he took the blame for sinners. And this cup that's inside here is full, we say, the fruit of the vine. Now some might say wine, some might say grape juice. Here today it's grape juice. What does this mean? It means that the blood of Jesus was spilled for sinners and that it is sufficient to cover the sins of all who would come to Jesus by faith for forgiveness and cleansing of their sin. This is our hope today. But did you know, it even as we gather for this, sin can mess this up. Sin, as I said at the beginning, spoils even the best things that Jesus gives us. But I see in this text the reality that even when that's so, the Lord Jesus as the host of this supper 
knows how to speak to each one of us and redeem the damage done by our sin so that this is no longer spoiled, but meaningful in the way that he intended it to be. If you're a young person here today and you have one of your papers, what you can know is this, the Lord's Supper helps us remember the Lord Jesus together and look forward to his return. I'm speaking to all of you for just a minute. Let me say that again. The Lord's Supper helps us to remember the Lord Jesus together and to look forward to his return. Now, I have three points to walk us through this text this morning, and I'll tell you what they are right away. Um, and there are no notes, but there is a lovely picture of a table in the title of this sermon, Room at the Table, which I hope you see is true by the time we're done. The first point this morning is this, sinners at the table. And the second point, the Savior at the table. And the third point, sharing the table together. All right, so let's go to the first point, sinners at the table. I think the first thing you need to know, even as we look back here at the text in verse 17, is that the Lord's Supper always has sinners present. Sinners always show up. And here's what it hap- how it happened in Corinth. Um, looking in verse 17 once again, Paul begins, and he's going to be talking to them about their misuse and their ill treatment of the Lord's Supper. And he starts by saying this, in the following instructions about the Lord's Supper, I do not commend you. He's, he's saying, I have nothing good to say to you about what you're doing. That's how much they've spoiled the Lord's Supper in their time in the first century. What was going on? He said, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He's saying, your, your church gatherings, when you're together and sharing this meal, it would be better if you didn't even show up. And if there was no church there in Corinth, why? Well, he starts and he's giving us some background in verse 18. He says, for in the first place, and for those of you who are looking for a second place because there has to be a first place, it doesn't show up. All right, I just want you to know, Paul does this sometimes. He starts an idea and then he's passionate and gets sidetracked and goes to the real meat of the issue and doesn't come to a second place. The Holy Spirit intended that way. Don't let it worry you, all right? But this is what he says. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Now, this was no surprise to the Apostle Paul. And I'm, I'm kind of doing a disservice to any exposition by starting in chapter 11 of a letter when really what's going on here is a church that's divided. And they, they liked to divide themselves into particular camps. If it wasn't about which teacher of the church was the best and about which camp of groupies you were in following Paul or Apollos or Peter or Jesus. It was something else. And in this time, it wasn't all that about teachers. It was about divisions in the church around economic or social caste. In first century Corinth, churches didn't meet like we do in this room this morning. They met in homes. The homes were were big enough to accommodate a large number of people and typically were in the places where the wealthy church members lived. This is a first generation uh, of people who are coming together as a church from all walks of life. There are those in this wealthy trade city who are all about wealth and it's all they've ever known. Perhaps they were born into it. Perhaps they 
worked hard and they became wealthy. But either way you look at it, they were not used to hanging out with anybody below their social status. I mean, from, for the Jews in the time period who were in this category, there was a typical prayer that they would pray. God, thank you that I am not a woman, that I am not a slave, and that I am not a Gentile. Now, these were not Christian prayers, but this is the context that they were coming out of. That's pretty divisive, wouldn't you say? You would actually pray that. I don't think that you could hold the church together very long. But Jesus knows that something is going on here and sends Paul by this letter to address the divisions that they're keeping in place. What's the particular of this historical Lord's Supper? Well, this is one of very few places in Scripture. It's actually here and in the stories of Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper, which was actually the first Lord's Supper, as it changed and proclaimed what the Passover feast was all about. We really only have these two examples of how the Lord's Supper was celebrated. But this is what we do know. At a time when they served the bread, similar to what we do, but perhaps with a loaf that they would break apart and share with one another around a table, they would have a pause in between the time of serving the bread to the time of taking the cup to have a big feast. In the Gospel of Jude, or the book of Jude, towards the end of the New Testament, Jude called these the love feasts of the church. There were times when people would gather together to eat. Now, for those of us who don't know much about this other than an ABF potluck, I'm afraid we might miss some of the importance of this. Right? This was no simple potluck. This was intense sharing of all things in common, bringing them to one place, and communicating through it, no matter where I've come from, no matter who I am, no matter what I make of myself, I come here humbly at the cross of Jesus Christ with you. I worship him and I love you. Now, in those homes in Corinth, the reality of how this worked out, the laws of the land of the Roman culture did not have a day off for slaves or the working class, and they had no way to predict when they would get off work. The wealthy would assemble and take the food intended for the whole body of the Corinthian church and go to the first place that all guests would come, the living room. A typical Corinthian family wealthy living room would hold about 50 people or so. Now, all of those who came in late, there was no room for them there. They would instead be out in the foyer, the atrium of the home, the entryway, where they would have to have their own type of service or their own meal together. Now, the wealthy were supposed to wait and to actually set their schedule according to what those in the kingdom who were struggling the most had to abide with. But instead of doing that, the wealthy were in the living room, feasting and pigging out and getting drunk. And so Paul comments on this. First of all, he says in verse 18, his first place, I hear there are divisions among you. Those are the divisions he's talking about. It's a lack of love across the social spectrum. There's no economic understanding between them. There's no love. And he's saying, I believe that this is happening, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine or approved or real among you may be recognized. That word factions is actually a Greek word, heresia, which you can actually almost hear our word heresy there. Now, these people were not speaking heretical doctrines. 
at the communion service, but they were living heretical doctrines at the communion service. It's actually possible to both speak the truth and by your life to completely deny it. And that's what's happening in Corinth in the first century. Paul says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So he said, let's get that cleared up right now. The form is right. You have the bread, you have the cup, but the reality is so far from what it's supposed to be, don't even call it the Lord's Supper. You're just eating your own meal. And so he says, in eating, verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Well, of course they, they should. And the point is, if they're hungry, eat there. And then when they come and gather, they show love to one another and support one another and try to work out the difficult yet true reality of what it means to be a church together. And he says, shall I commend you? No, he says, you're despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. Here's how God feels about this. If you don't regard his people with love, then not only are you disparaging and humiliating them, you're dishonoring God. God identifies with all his people. And he will not take the discrimination that this body dealt to each, each other, and he won't take discrimination from 21st century West Park toward one another either. Now I would say, with this theme of sinners at the table, I know full well that there are sinners here today because I myself am one. And my friends, you are too. And we come either as sinners in need, knowing that our only hope is Jesus, or hardened sinners, fixed in our discriminations and our partialities, and not moving toward one another. My concern is that it's difficult here to actually get to the point when the divisions among us could actually approve or show the genuineness of a person's faith in Jesus Christ. Because this service tends to be very personal. Each of you are in your own seat facing forward. You don't tend to look at one another, and the room is not designed for that. And I'm not even saying that we have to be all seated at a huge table together today for this to make sense and for it to work. But this is what I do think we need to wrestle with, that there should never be an excuse of sitting in a service full of hundreds of people and looking one direction up here means that you are not here with others beside you who you are responsible to love. I dare say if we were sitting down at a table, a table to have fellowship with some people in here, and I plopped you down and assigned you to different tables where different colors were represented, different ethnic backgrounds were represented, but the only thing that bound you together was your common faith and your need of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there may not also be with that some discriminations that rise to the surface. But God be praised we have someone in control of this feast, and it's a Savior. I'm, I'm glad that I don't assign you to those tables. Because I don't know what my reaction would be, but I know one thing that I would need is a Savior. And what we have at the table is a Savior, and that's point two. Let's look at that text. Again, Paul does not commend them at all by their actions, 
but he does point them to Jesus. This is all he can do, and this is the best thing he can do. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This scene and what he's received comes from the Gospel of Luke. And if you'd go back there now, Luke chapter 22. Let's read what was happening at the first Lord's Supper, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. I'll read verses 14 and 15 now. And when the hour came, this is the the hour of Jesus' impending death and his betrayal by Judas to the the hands of the, the high priests of Israel. So when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table this is how they, they went to dinner in the first century. They reclined at the tables together. And the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And here's the context. Uh, Jesus' first Lord's Supper service was not in a megachurch of 2,000 people. And he was not standing on a stage with a table below him and with 30 people coming to help pass out those little plates. Now, I'm not being silly. Things have changed since then. But there was historical precedent to what Jesus was doing, what he was communicating here, and what it means for us here, no matter what our context is. He was at a table reclining with his disciples. A similar scene was happening all over Israel that night. What was the thing that they were all doing? They were celebrating the Passover feast. The Passover was God's required feast each year at that time. And it just so happened to coincide with Jesus' impending death. The Passover was all about how God delivered them from Egypt. And he commanded them at that time to kill a lamb and to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes and to trust that the covering of that blood would save them from death and deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And those who believed, God rescued. And they remember this. But what's different is Jesus is not a father to these men. In one sense, they're not even related, some of them. But what he's doing is taking what was familial, family-oriented, and saying, I have a new family now. And he earnestly desired, he He was zealous. He was eager to celebrate that Passover with his beloved friends. And so he says and communicates to each of us who come even here to this table this morning, we assemble if we're covered by the blood of Jesus as his friends, as his his spiritual family. This is what we've come for. Now the irony in, in this scene, even as Jesus takes the bread and the cup and the meal in between with his disciples, is that his disciples decide to have an argument here about which one of them is worthy of more respect. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now apparently, 
This is not a problem specific to the Corinthian church. Here again is the same situation. A group of people who have come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to share a meal with him at his table. Nevertheless, arguing among one another about which one of them is the greatest and should receive the greatest status. If the Lord had let this play out, I'm sure that the disciples would have had little separate tables that they would have preferred to set up around the room that night about who was the greatest and who should maybe not sit at the greatest table, but still the good table. No matter how it works out, our human hearts will divide along the lines of what we think is great and what we regard as precious and what we regard as worthy of protecting. Jesus wants us to be humbled with that attitude. Look in verse 25. He says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. This was the, the whole Gentile world. Someone is powerful and rich and in control, and the rest follow that person and yield. But Jesus says, In his kingdom, things are flipped. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? If we don't know the answer to that question, he answers it. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? That's the greatest person. But he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is applying grace at the table. What does the Savior bring to the table? What do these these bits of bread and the cups represent? Grace to you. The grace he gives to these arguing disciples and the sinners at the table is the grace to communicate to them, you come here, brothers, humbly. And likewise today, the admonition to each one of us, brothers and sisters, is that we must come to this supper, this shared meal, humbly. It's the humility that wonders to God, Lord, why was I invited? It's the humility that says, why am I a guest at this table? Why should I belong? There's a song that I love to sing sometimes called, Jesus, Thank You. And one of the lines there says, once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. That's the reality, friends. The grace to be humble and to respond in that way. Jesus then goes on to say in verse 28, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. And then get this, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You bickering, arguing men, I'm going to give you the kingdom, and you're all going to reign, and I love you. (laughs) How amazing is this grace that when we think our sins get punishment, we actually get more grace because the host is punished. The lamb, the ultimate lamb, Jesus Christ, was punished for those sins. doesn't mean we're not rebuked, and it doesn't mean we don't repent. But what else can this do but work out in us the humility to say, I'm wrong, and Lord, you're right. I am unworthy, but you count me as worthy because of your blood and your body spilled for me. 
Back in 1 Corinthians 11, the grace that Jesus gives to us is in two other things. And what you often hear us saying on the mornings we do the Lord's Supper. One is his body broken for us. This represents the, the sinner's first and great hope that there is a substitute for the sin that we commit. And every sinner who comes to the table sees that body broken and, and knows that as Jesus says, this is my body, it's for you. That it was his next move to willingly go on to that cross to suffer and die so that all the hopes of the people and all the Passovers past, as they all pointed toward the need of a lamb who would once for all take away the sins of the people, it was that lamb, Jesus Christ. And as we come, the grace to us is, we're reminded that there is never any amount of self-effort that can save any single one of us sinners. Our only hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the offering of his body. It was accepted. God the Father accepted it. And he bids us to remember him and to know it again. Likewise, the cup, Jesus says, the cup is the new covenant in his blood. In the Old Testament, there were lots of covenants. The Old Testament is full of those covenants. And typically God would come and he would make an arrangement where he would promise certain things. I will be this to you. I will be your God. I will be with you. And he said, on the other hand, if you obey me, if you follow me with all your hearts. And time after time, the people of God proved that they could not keep their end of the covenant. And a time came in their history when they longed for something to change. And the prophet Jeremiah came and he said, there's a new covenant that God will make. The new covenant is coming. And it's a time when God will no longer speak to you on the outside, walk this way, but he will speak to you in your heart. And he will bring you to life. And he will give you his Holy Spirit. And he'll cleanse you of all your sins once for all. If you stick around here at West Park, Pastor Sam will get there in the Hebrew series really soon with a whole lot of wonderful teaching about the new covenant. But what we need to know today is Jesus says his blood poured out inaugurated that new covenant. That if you want that, you have faith that his blood was spilled for your sin and that it's sufficient to cover you. I'd like to go, finally, just to some practical outworkings of what this means. All right, and the third point, sharing at the table. And, and as I go into verses 27 to 34, I won't be able to answer every question, but I do want to raise some questions that are typically asked about the Lord's Supper and answer them from this text. Let's start with an easy one. Should we use grape juice or wine? Sure. Next question. <laughs> now, there's a long history of why churches in the United States use grape juice. If you really want to know that, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. It's obvious that people in this time period used wine because they were getting drunk at their meals. Uh, I, there's another whole sermon we could do about wine and its disastrous consequences and its proper uses by the redeemed people of God. But here today, we don't have wine. We have grape juice. All right? Question two. Who should eat this supper? Now, this is a little more tricky, so I want to get into this. 
although we'd like to talk about the other. This is the more important. Who should eat this supper? Well, first of all, the gathered church. The gathered church should eat this supper. That's why Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together to eat this. Now, he says that in verses 17 and 18 and 20 and 33 and 34. You'll see that theme repeated. When you come together, as you gather together to eat this meal. All right? So it really should be uh, here in the gathered church. This is why we don't do it in our ABFs. We don't do it in our growth groups. Uh, We don't do it in each other's homes. Although it's not that it can't be done in any of those places. But I think what needs to happen is a representation in as best a way as we can of the body of West Park, of the body of any local church gathering together to remember Jesus. This is a whole church event, and it's exciting for that. What about if you're not yet baptized? All right, those, there are two things that the Lord commands of us when we follow him. Be baptized, right? and, and he commands a lot of things, but initially he wants you to be baptized and to get in a church where you can celebrate and remember the Lord's Supper with your church family. Well, at West Park, we don't teach that you must be baptized to share in the Lord's Supper here together, but, a big but, since both baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two and only visible signs or visible uh, ordinances that Jesus has given us to follow him as his people, it, it only makes sense if you are willing to obey the command to receive this supper then why would you not be willing to receive the command and obey and be baptized? So I want to urge you, if you have not been baptized, but you are following Jesus and you believe in him and you know he's forgiven you of your sins, you're welcome to this table. But it really doesn't make sense to continue being unbaptized. It's the great delight, if you would be, in following the Lord Jesus to to him and to us. Uh, If you're a guest with us, Are you invited to take this? If you have believed in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and you know you are following him and your trust is in him alone, you are welcome to this table. But I will say this, it's a word of invitation for you. Um, Consider this to be your church home. If you live here in Knoxville, it's not good to float around from church to church. Pick one. And if it happens to be here, great. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together once a month. And this is a time of corporate celebration, body fellowship, as we remember what God has done for us. If you're not a believer in Jesus, should you take this today? With all the respect for you, my friends who have come here and are sitting through this sermon, I would answer that question, no. When the the plates come to you, use this day as they pass you by to repent of your sins There may not be another time when you come and this supper is served. But today can be the day of your salvation so that you'll never miss another meal again. And you get to be included with the family of God and sit someday at the feast that Jesus will spread for his people in his kingdom. That day is coming. And we're told that we celebrate this to remember Jesus until he comes. So my friend, if you are not a believer, and you know, you know in your heart, you have never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and you have no desire to, or you really don't even understand what that means, let the plates pass by you today. But 
find out this day from some of these other people who take the bread and cup, if you're serious about Jesus, go to those people and ask them how you can become a Christian. Or come and find me. Or come and find Pastor Al. Come and talk to Pastor Doug after we're done. We would love to introduce you to Jesus today. Believers, we should approach this feast with a seriousness. The Bible tells us don't approach this in an unworthy manner, okay? The unworthy manner would be unrepentant sin in your heart and hardness toward Jesus and hardness toward his people. But it doesn't say if you're an unworthy person, you can't come. To be honest, we're all unworthy persons and we're all here together. And we have the opportunity now to think rightly about this meal that we share together. It symbolizes Jesus and what he's done. And it symbolizes that we belong to one another. It says that Jesus, and then the, the final question, how is Jesus present in the Lord's Supper? On the one hand, this little bit of bread does not turn into his body once it hits your stomach. And these cups of juice do not turn into the blood of Jesus as it goes down your throat. Now, our Roman Catholic neighbors may teach this. Even some Lutherans modify that and teach it a different way, but not quite in the same damaging effect. But here, we believe that these are symbolic. These are symbolic of what Jesus has done. But that doesn't mean they're without power to communicate to us that the Lord is present. In the greatest sense, our king as the host right now is also the judge. Look finally, if you will, down at verse 32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's a certain self-judging we have to do. That doesn't mean endless introspection, trying to figure out if we're worthy to be here. Again, I want to remind you, nobody is worthy. But if you believe in Jesus, as he reveals sins to you, repent of those sins. As he reveals sins toward other people, determine today, now, in this time of sharing the bread and the cup, to go to those people and to repent to them. So that your relationships this way and this way will be what Jesus intends them to be. That's his intent by this meal that we share together now.